All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know, yes, my name is Dave. Good work. Um, <clears throat> my name's Dave. I'm the student pastor here. I'm very glad to be speaking on a Sunday. Very cool. All right, so I'm going to start us off with a quote from uh, an awesome book series some of you might have heard of called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Chronicles of Narnia uh, is this allegory that's written by C.S. Lewis, who I think is like the best non-biblical author of all time. Um, and in this scene, he has uh, two girls, Susan and Lucy, <clears throat> and they're getting ready to meet Aslan the lion. And Aslan the lion represents Jesus Christ throughout the story. In the scene, we also have two talking animals. We have Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver, and they are preparing the children to meet Aslan. So we have Susan talking first. She says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. So I want to talk uh, about something and ask you a pretty important question about a topic that's found in our Bible over 300 times. And it's a topic that God's kind of laid on my heart pretty consistently for the last couple of years. And I've asked several of my friends um, over the last couple of years this question, some of them being pastors and even some of them had not just yes or no answers, it was more like, hey, let's talk about what that means and other things, but as the quote a minute ago just alludes to, my question is, do you fear God? Do you fear God? So um, I got to choose who I wanted to preach on for this Living in Exile series, and I chose Joseph, the son of Jacob in Genesis, and as I studied him, that question kept coming back to me. Do I fear God? So we're going to unpack that concept a little bit and talk about a lot more different stuff this morning as we go through Joseph's kind of just insane, incredible story in Genesis. And we're going to go there right now. So we're going to go to page 34 if you're going to use a blue Bible under your seat. Um, but we're going to be in Genesis 37 if you brought your own Bible. So Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So a bad report of his brothers. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, so tying up things of uh, wheat. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture the father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he uh, said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. So he went to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, who's one of the brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then many a night traders passed by and they drew drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, which is a sign of of mourning uh, and anger, and sadness, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces." Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, which means grave, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so a lot going on here, but we see that we're introduced to this guy, Joseph, who is the most loved son of Jacob, which by the way, not great parenting um, right there. When you have 12 kids, don't pick one favorite, you know, that's not good. Um, but Joseph's journey, you know, seems to be going pretty good. He's having dreams from God and, is, and you know, he's loved by his dad. Um, and then it kind of takes this unexpected turn when he is sold into slavery by his own brothers. And this is something, you know, I've read the story like a million times growing up, but when we really try to put ourselves in his shoes, this is a heartbreaking event. 
It is, is awful. And it casts Joseph into this life of exile, which is far from his home and far from everything he ever knew. And imagine the feelings he's going through, the feelings of loneliness and uncertainty and betrayal and despair. And he's experiencing it all in a foreign land. So we're talking about like the ultimate betrayal here, flesh and blood selling you into slavery. But if we seriously think about it, our siblings, you know, going, okay, let's, let's kill him now. Let's throw him into a well. And then they take you out only so they can make a profit off of you and they sell you to slavers. We're talking about pure hate, literally no love at all towards their brother. And we have to remember too, he's only 17. So now he's got to finish growing up, finish becoming a man, what it means to be a, a, a God-fearing man, but doing all of it without his parents and as a slave in a foreign land. So I think if we took the time to try to comprehend the sorrow and hopelessness, I think it would cause a lot of that in our hearts. It's a gut-wrenching thing. But how does Joseph respond to this horrible turn of events we're gonna keep reading. We're gonna to go to page 37, and we're gonna to go to Genesis 39, and we're gonna start in verse one in chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had him uh, overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but just the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put me in charge of everything, uh, put everything that he has under my, uh, in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except for you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house and as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Okay, so one of the phrases we see throughout this story over and over and over again is the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, that doesn't just simply mean, oh, okay, the, you know, God's gonna bless Joseph with success or even worldly success. 
what it really means at the core of it is that God was never going to forsake Joseph. He was never going to leave Joseph. Um, Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. So God never left him. He didn't abandon Joseph to suffer through all of this traumatic stuff alone. But you could read all of this and go, like, how in the world can Moses, the, the one who wrote this, write that God was with Joseph when we're seeing all these horrible things going down, like familial betrayal, slavery, and now these false accusations of one of the worst things you can ever do leading to imprisonment? And I think it's a fair question. But what's the next line after the line we just read, and he was there in prison? So verse 21, again, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So he's betrayed by his brothers. And, Mo and Moses is writing, the Lord was with Joseph. Sold into slavery, the Lord was with him. Working hard as a slave for his slave master, the Lord is still with him. Falsely accused, the Lord's with him. Unjustly imprisoned, the Lord was with Joseph. So have you ever had seasons in your life where it kind of felt like that, where you're taking one step forward and then two steps back, one step forward, two steps back? Um, I definitely have. But have you also have seasons in your life where then years go by after that darker season and you start to see how God was actually with you every step of the way? Even though in the middle of it, in the midst of the darkness, it didn't really always feel like that at the time but then years go by and you're able to see more of the whole story arc and how God did things and you're like, wow, yeah, he, he never forsake me. He, he was right there in the middle of it with me. Well, the way that Moses writes this is mostly without the thoughts and feelings of Joseph as he's suffering. But Joseph was a human man. Um, and despite how awesome he was at times, he's like us. He's imperfect, unable to see the future, unable to see how God's gonna work things out. And I promise you, despite how Moses wrote this, Joseph didn't feel like, okay, I'm falsely accused and in prison, but God's with me, so it's all great. I promise you, that is not how he felt in the time. I guarantee you, it was horrible and, and awful for him. However, even after being falsely accused by this government official and being in prison, God showed Joseph st steadfast love and used this time to use Joseph and grow Joseph for God's purposes and will. That brings us to our first point this morning. God has plans to use you and grow you even in the darkest seasons of exile. And this is awesome news. This is great news for us because um, there's no way to like get around dark times your whole life. We're gonna go through really tough times. Jesus himself promises in John 16, 33 that we're gonna have trouble in this life. So there's no way to somehow get around that forever. But the fact that God uses it all, despite how bad life's circumstances seem to get, and that's part of the abundant life we always talk about in here, in Jesus. It's all used by God. It's all used to grow us and for his glory. So when we were reading through uh, chapter 39, uh, verses seven and nine, we see this pivotal moment in Joseph's story. This is the part where Potiphar's wife, enticed by Joseph's good looks, attempts to seduce him. Yet Joseph resists her advances and he says, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
in, in Joseph's just unwavering obedience to God in face of temptation, and not even just sexual temptation. It could have been also like he was afraid of literally what ended up happening. He might, might have been aware like, hey, if I say no, she could do something like that, and then it does happen. So it could have been multiple forms of temptation, but the fact that he was so obedient to God, you know, despite that temptation, it sets this awesome example for us in our own journeys because, you know, we live in a world today where we are constantly bombarded by temptations that threaten to, you know, at least, at the very least, try to divert us from God's narrow path. You know, whether it be the allure of, like, material possessions or the pressure to compromise our own values for personal gain or the temptation of having unhealthy relationships, uh, whatever it may be. But Joseph's commitment to God's commandments challenges us to prioritize our love for God above all else. And his commitment to God and following God's commandments, it was from his love for God and a deep-seated fear of God, which shaped all his decisions and guided all of his actions. And throughout his journey, Joseph consistently prioritized God's will over the opinions and desires of other people and even his own desires. And as we live in exile, we are also faced with endless temptations to leave God. We are faced with temptations to mainly choose ourselves, but also basically anything else besides God. Uh, Peter, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2.11, um, wrote this awesome little passage as it pertains to Christians living in exile on earth. Um, so 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which uh, wage war against the soul. So Joseph's fear of God can be seen in his refusal to yield to Potiphar's wife's advances. Instead of giving into temptation and fleshly lust, Joseph chose to honor God and maintain his obedience to God. And this uncompromising stance reveals Joseph's unwavering fear of God and his deep reverence for him. However, Joseph's fear of God wasn't you know, just limited to just these extreme times of temptation, but it really extended to every aspect of his entire life. So even during his time in prison, Joseph doesn't just give up and go, okay, well, that's it. I mean, how many times do I have to go through things like this? Instead, he continues to trust God. He remained faithful, knowing that God's plans often transcend human understanding. Fear of God means trusting God despite circumstances. But the fear of God does mean more than even that important truth. Um, it also means knowing God. And when you know God, then you know his attributes. And I know many people associate God more with his attribute of love, more so than his attribute of judgment, and I believe that makes a lot of sense because he was the one who decided to save us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. But that doesn't mean he isn't still the perfect righteous judge, right? He is still perfectly holy, and he has to. He must judge sin because he is a perfect, good, loving God. So sin must be judged. Um, I was asked a few months ago by a, by a middle school boy, um, why do you always tell us to read the Bible and tell us to read the Daily Ten? So Daily Ten is just like our daily Bible reading that corresponds with what we're preaching on Wednesday nights. Um, and typically I try to give them some application, action steps at the end of sermons going, this is what we can do to work on things we learned from the Bible uh, that night. Um, and typically it's prayer and Bible reading are always like 
at the top of the list every single week. So he was like, what the heck's the deal with that? Every single week, it's the same thing. Um, and my response was, because God called me to be a teacher of his word, and I am responsible to him to do that. And I truly believe that nothing in this universe can change the fact that one day I am going to stand before God and be judged by him. And he was like, oh, um, did not expect such an intense answer. Um, but I believe that's true. And I believe that's true about every aspect of my life, not just as a preacher, but as first a Christ follower and as a husband, as a father, a son, a brother, a friend, and as a teacher of his word. But do you believe that? Do you believe that one day you are going to stand before God and be judged on what you did with what he gave you? Here's the thing. In one way, it, it really matters what you believe because what you believe is how you're going to live. But another way, it doesn't matter what you believe about this because what you believe cannot change truth. And the word of God says you are going to stand before him, so you are going to stand before him. Um, but do you live right now knowing that that is true? Not out of, you know, just trying to be a better person, but because you love God because he first loved you. Love God by obeying him knowing one day you will face him in judgment. <clears throat> so the good news is, if you are a true Christ follower and Jesus is the, actually in charge of your life, he is your Lord, we can no longer be condemned. But we will still be judged for the good and bad. But this point is what Joseph did well, obeying God out of his love for God. And he loved God because he feared God, and he feared God because he knew God, and because you know God is so powerful and holy and perfect, that knowledge brings a natural, healthy, reverential fear of God. But as Joseph's life continues, he's given this awesome ability by God to not only kind of understand his own dreams, but starting to understand the dreams of others. And another prisoner in there with him learns about this as he starts to translate their dreams. And after being freed, this prisoner goes, to, goes back and works for Pharaoh again. And then Pharaoh starts to have all these crazy dreams, kind of sounds familiar to the Daniel stuff, right? Um, he starts to have all these crazy dreams and he requests for someone to help him translate his own dreams. And that former prisoner remembered Joseph and his ability to do just that thing. So he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Joseph comes in, he helps Pharaoh, he finds favor with him, and he works his way up to being number two in the entire country. And he is specifically given responsibility over all the food and food storage in the land. And because he stored the food well, when a drought and famine came, they were all good to go. But who wasn't doing well with food? The people of Israel. That is his family. So Jacob and his family needed food badly. So they went to the one place they knew still had it, and that was Egypt. And they go there, and the brothers, the whole family, don't even recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And after Joseph once again submitting to God's will and obeying God and trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty, finds the strength through God to somehow forgive his brothers. And he gives them food and it saves all their lives. And they all move to Egypt and they live for a very long time and prosper in Egypt. Then we see later on how important it was for that group of brothers to live on. Because 1,700 years later, the savior of the universe would be born from the lineage of one of those brothers, his brother Judah, the one who uh, was like, hey, let's profit off of him and sell him into slavery. Um, so if at any one moment Joseph started to fear people 
or fear things in, in this world more than he feared God, or if Joseph started to love himself or things of this world more than he loved God, then this story would be drastically different. But that's why we fear God more and obey him out of love because we trust that he will use it all to do things we could never even fathom happening. So point number four is trust God will use every good and bad thing in your life even in ways you will never see or fully understand. So even in those dark seasons, that feeling of one step forward and two steps back, God was in control. And God's will unfolded just as he desired it to. But here's the thing. Joseph had no idea that 1,700 years later, the Messiah would be born from their family. That God in the flesh would come to us through his own family line. That Jesus, in John 14, 6, declares that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life would be born through his own brother's lineage. But Joseph trusted God. And he loved God and feared God more than people. Joseph feared God more than he feared possibly missing out on some of his own personal dreams and goals because instead of living out his own personal dreams and goals, he's obeying and living for God. So after all this crazy stuff, how does Joseph's story come to an end? It's awesome because it's literally the same way he lived his entire life, trusting God. So Genesis 50, uh, verse 24 will be on the screen. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph also didn't know that only generations later, a new pharaoh would rise up who did not know Joseph, did not know his story, and would look around and see all of the Israelites and how there were so many of them now and they were flourishing and got fearful of what if they start to band up and rebel against us, so why don't we enslave them to make sure that doesn't happen? So all of his ancestors, all of the Israelites, are enslaved for over 300 years. Joseph also didn't know that his people during that time would largely forget the God of his father, Jacob, until God rose up a man named Moses and used him to help free all of those Israelites from slavery. And as they gathered up all their possessions to leave Egypt and go back home, what is the very last thing mentioned that they took with them? Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So he was promised to be buried in Israel and his bones finally leave Egypt after 300 plus years and then they're instantly home the next day. No, what happens? <laughs> Takes them another 40 years of wandering and battling in the desert before they finally get back home. And that just reminds you of how interesting God's timing can be. But let's read about that arrival in Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that, God, uh, that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So God makes good on all his promises here, on his promise to visit, free his people, bring them home, and bury Joseph in the land of his father. Mostly, again, God kept his promise to never forsake them to never leave them, to always be with them. 
Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this shows us the reality of our fifth point. God allowing difficult and bad things to happen does not mean he forsakes us. He is always with us. God can't break his promises. He is always with us because he loves us and he loved us first. And we obey him out of love for him and trusting his love for us. And we see through Joseph's life how God uses every single thing to bring about his will, even the heartache, even other people's sinful betrayal. And Joseph acknowledges this in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So even when it seems completely impossible, God uses it all for good. And we don't just see this once or twice. It's just over and over and over again. And none of it was easy or safe. Every single thing we read about this morning, all of it was just horribly dangerous and terribly difficult. But Joseph trusted God, knowing God is the way, the truth, the life. And we are a part of this story that is still unfolding. When we fear God more than people, more than this world, more than keeping control over our own lives instead of giving it to him, when we put our trust in the fact that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, then we enter into a level of this story where we start to trust God and trust that God has his own perfect, sovereign, and good will that is unfolding all around us despite circumstances, and that's when we start to live differently because we know it's true. That's when we start to obey God and we start to live for God in ways that are not easy and that are not safe and in ways that honestly sometimes have been super scary for me and my family even, but we trust in his goodness. So I wanna leave us this morning with one more Narnia quote. Now this is arguably like my favorite quote outside of the Bible in any book ever. Um, and in this scene, there is a girl named Jill who is thirsty and she is going near a stream to drink water, but lying near the stream is again Aslan the lion, who once again represents Christ. So the lion says, are you not thirsty? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Well, do you eat girls, she said. <laughs> I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion said, there is no other stream. So there is no true life to be found outside of Jesus. He is the life. However, he makes no promise to give you a life of safety and ease. However, he does promise to never leave you. That's a big deal. He promises to use every experience to grow you. And that process is usually not like a pretty flower blooming. It is far more like metal being refined in a furnace. Not easy, not safe 
but real and true. And that, that is real life, only to be found in our loving God. And that's why we trust him and choose him over all else. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, for calling us to you, for loving us enough that when we were just horrible sinners, you knew every sin, every single one of us was gonna commit. While you died on the cross, you knew it all, you saw it all, and yet you still did it. You still willfully carried your cross to the top of that mountain and died to bear every single shameful, ugly, nasty sin all of us would ever commit. And you did it because you loved us, loved us beyond what we could ever understand. God, I know that you want us to love you and fear you because you are our dad. We should fear being distant from you. Um, we, should, we should fear uh, not knowing you well enough. Uh, God, you, just, you love us so much and we thank you for promising us an abundant life, but not an easy and a safe life, a life of purpose and meaning can't be safe and easy. But we love you, Lord, for giving us that life and for the biggest promise of all, never forsaking us and always being with us. Your Holy Spirit dwells with us forever. Nothing we can do or say can ever change that fact. We love you, God, for loving us that much. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.